I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. I'm Atish Padi, Communications Manager at Takshashila, and your host for today. In this episode, we will be talking about political violence and how factors such as inequality, economic prospects tie into motivating individuals and groups towards political violence. To talk about this and more with me today is Arushi Kataria, who is a junior research fellow with Tafshishila. Hi, Arushi. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me here. All right. So let's start with why do people protest? Why do movements begin? Right. So let's start at the beginning about what are, from the top of your head, the motivational factors behind political violence. And then we'll come to inequality and everything else later. And what are various different approaches that various research domains have taken towards understanding protest and mass movement? Right. So um, I think to begin with, it's important to understand that any sort of social movement, protesting anything versus any sort of social movement is a form of contentious politics. It's, you know, this episodic public collective interaction amongst makers of claims and their objects when, you know, there are discrepancies between the interests of these two parties. Um, Largely, there have been three main theories about why people join, four main theories about why people join social movements. The first being the most discredited one, it's called the mass society theory. And now that's extremely skeptical about why people join social movements. Um, they are judgmental of the reasons that people have. There is a normative assumption about, you know, why people join, such as their lives are boring, they're monotonous, or they believe that people are living meaningless lives and joining a movement will give them meaning, it provide them with community and excitement. And uh, it's a way of understanding crowd psychology, basically. But this has been largely discredited in the decades after it was launched. Then we have the most uh, famous Olson's rational choice theory, which posits that people's participation is motivated by some cost-benefit analysis, whether judging the utility of their participation and the outcome of their participation or the outcome that they desire. And this, however, assumes that people have full knowledge of the consequences of their actions. Something we're going to be talking about today is the third theory, which is the relative deprivation theory. Relative deprivation is the feeling of deprivation that is developed because people feel they deserve better. It's the impression that the current situation cannot be changed by institutional means, so there is a need for collective action. And it's not just limited to people who are considered less privileged because a person could be privileged but still feel relative deprivation in relation to time, to others, or to their own expectations, so to speak. This is non-normative, and they're focusing on the actions of groups. It's not focused on individuals. And they believe that it's not always the worst of that mobilized, but most of the time it is. And the largest, uh, the fourth theory that is there is resource mobilization. This is probably one of the more practical theories because it's pointing out constraints to people joining movements or a movement sustaining, such as money, material, resources, and influence. Its biggest emphasis is always on charismatic leadership, on access to media, on access to information. 
and they believe that not all of these things are necessary for a social movement to sustain itself but or be successful but they necessarily helpful at least um but as i mentioned the most important thing we'll be talking about today is the relative deprivation theory and i think one thing before we move further into you know the podcast is understanding one very major idea of relative deprivation which is the j curve now the j curve is this idea that you know there is the satisfaction of people and as time progresses there is an actual satisfaction that people have versus what they're expecting and as the distance between both of these starts to increase you get somewhat of a j curve and the gap between the expectation and the satisfaction actual satisfaction desired when this becomes large enough people will revolt or this is when political violence protests etc are more likely to break up and i think it's an interesting idea and through the podcast maybe we'll either debunk this idea or hold on to it more strongly uh right so thanks for covering the various approaches to you know why why people would join mass movement now the reason we began by talking about mass movement and politics protest is not because we want to equate that you know if you join a mass movement it has to necessarily be violent but often some sort of mobilization is a precursor to to sustained political violence right now before we go into relative deprivation and the paper that we're discussing today specifically which we'll introduce shortly tell me more broadly what is the level of analysis we should be considering in the sense that from your from what you said about the various approaches i could sense that a few of them look at it from the perspective of entirely from the perspective of individuals and their motivations for joining joining a movement but at the same time because movements by the very definition are you know collective action uh, there would be some sort of collective identity that would be extremely important in driving it towards success or just driving it towards you know more mobilization right so should we be looking at should the level of analysis be group based or should it be individual based because i can see the sense in both but yeah what what is your what is your perspective right i think you very accurately pointed out that you know depending on what we're examining maybe the level of uh, analysis should differ but i think to was put it out with a three levels of analysis that can exist the first being a micro level where we look at individuals their motivations and these tend to look at people in a vacuum um the second is me so where we look at groups and organizations or we place individuals in a larger context of the society they are working in and lastly we have macro which looks at you know structural phenomena where you're looking at whether these sort of problems are existing across society how have they been tackled before etc etc um i particularly feel like the meso level is the most useful when it comes to analyzing participation in movements and this is because of the idea that a, a human being doesn't operate in a vacuum um they are largely motivated by factors in their surroundings and their environment especially their socioeconomic position and uh, the meso level most accurately is able to examine this and that's why i particularly feel that the meso level is most important or most useful as a tool when analyzing uh, motivations of people to join movement all right before we proceed just just to uh, go on the distinction between meso and and macro right or, or the largest level could you touch upon a little more about what are like the differences between those two levels of analysis because they are both uh looking at it from 
uh, group-based level, right? from not, not exactly from an individual level. And why would one want to consider a macro level? Why would one want to want to look at it from the perspective of a society or a nation at all? Right? Wouldn't that be too large a length anyway? I think the idea becomes uh, that when you're looking at a MISO level, you're looking at people and their surroundings and the groups they're a part of. So, for instance, if one was analyzing the civil rights movement, you would look at an organization like the NAACP, which was consisting of people who came from a very particular background and had chosen a very particular way to make their voice heard. They didn't choose protest, they chose legal recourse to make their voices heard. But if you were looking at a more macro level, you would look at the race problem as a whole during the civil rights movement, or you would look at the lack of civil rights being provided to a very certain segment of society. And the distinction then comes in is that the motivations behind individuals joining groups are important in a MISO level, whereas in a macro level, you're just looking at the problem as a whole. You gloss over a lot of the heterogeneities that exist between people. You begin to look at the problem itself as a monolith that does not have any distinctions amongst different people. But even if you had to look at the civil rights movement, as the example I've been talking about, the approach taken by the NAACP was very different from the approach taken by the black churches, which was again very different from people who chose violent means of protesting. And if you were to look at a more macro level, maybe or most probably that lens would not make these distinctions or even hypothesize that these three different distinctions could be possible under the same movement. Because it tends to find the least, it f- tends to find the least common denominator between all of the between this issue and the people a part of it, and it comes up with one homogeneous solution or theory for it. Right. Thank you. Thank you for that. Before we discuss the paper itself, let's take a short break. Welcome back. I'm Atish, and you're listening to All Things Policy. And we are discussing what drives individuals and groups towards political violence. All right, so let's get into the paper that we want to discuss about, about political violence. This is a paper called Poor Prospect, Not Inequality, Motivate Political Violence. Right? And the authors take from existing political science research, social psychological research, and prospect theory from behavioral science to say that dynamic relative deprivation that is the change in your economic prospect over time is much more important than static inequality. So if you, if you are a poor person that has been poor for a long time, for example, you're not going to join a violent movement because of that. But if, you, if your poverty has increased recently or if you were better off and now you've gotten worse, then the motivations to join political violence increase uh is that is that a fair characterization of the paper also yeah i agree that that's a very very fair characterization of the paper and uh, i think as we move ahead with the uh, you know this discussion we'd be able to say whether you know we agree with it what are the caveats of such an approach and maybe what is other literature on this topic telling us all right then let's get into it and uh do you want to talk about this concept of relative deprivation a little more what are the what are the uh, you know things going for it? What are the caveats? What we should keep in mind when analyzing you know studies like this, which are based entirely on relative deprivation. 
Right. So I think the idea of going back to relative deprivation is not new. Yeah. And it's the fact that it goes back to Aristotle. Uh, you know, it's been said that political discontent and its consequences, protests, instability, violence, they depend not only on the absolute level of economic wealth, but also on its distribution, which is to say on the distinctions between the rich and the poor. And, um, and, and if you actually go through literature on, you know, relative deprivation, ancient and modern, you theoretical as well as empirical, you'll find that over and over again, people have linked political violence as a function of economic inequality. And it's something the paper talks about as well. Now, we talk about uh, theorists that, you know, most people will know today. You talk about Marx. Marx's theory emphasizes the violence potential of economic inequality. You know, as the industrial working class is expected to rebel because they have nothing to lose but their chains. Because as the proletariat revolution becomes, is, you know, becoming, we notice that the expectations that people have versus what they're really getting is different. And that sort of leads to this sort of class consciousness and people revolting. Um, frustration is also becomes a part of this. The J-curve that I spoke about, the gap between the expectations that people have versus the reality of what they're experiencing leads to frustration in people. And um, frustration is generally, you know, when the state of affairs are not as you would like them, aggression is going to be directed towards the persons or objects that are being perceived to be the source of this frustration. And in our case, that in our case, or as we discussed the paper, that generally tends to be the state. And it is the simple hypothesis that has been drawn is that aggression is always a consequence of frustration. So we went from the fact that frustration is a consequence of economic inequality and that aggression or violence becomes a consequence of this frustration. And uh, it's, you know, aggression is in turn defined as an act whose goal responses injury to somebody else. One of the biggest uh, ideas has come in from Davies, who is the person responsible for the inverse J-curve. Um, and, you know, this idea of if you don't have satisfaction, there will be revolution. Um, Gur went on to say that the magnitude of relative deprivation is the extent of the difference between a person's desired and actual situation. More specifically, it is a perceived discrepancy between people's value expectations, that is the goods to which people believe they're entitled, and their value capabilities, that is the goods and conditions they think they're capable of obtaining in this, you know, in the current society. And for good, this was a fundamental and necessary precondition for any kind of civil conflict. There have been variations of relative deprivation, but the key idea has still remained the same, that you need to have economic inequality, which will cause frustration, which will in turn cause aggression. And um, for instance, you also have this idea that came about in the late 1980s that, you know, high level of agrarian inequality would not, would have a very high effect on these kind of revolutions breaking out because as Marx put it, these people have nothing to lose. So the idea has always stemmed from economic inequality and people not having enough or at least this perceived idea that they should be having more. And uh, that's the idea that relative deprivation is based on. It's extremely, extremely individual because it is on a person's perceived discrepancy between what they're entitled to versus what they can actually obtain. The caveats of um, such a theory are obviously what one would expect. You know, how do you really define 
you know, objective conditions and actual perceptions. How do you, you know, very objectively measure this gap? Secondly, there is the psychological assumption that of how people are going to behave when they're in a situation of frustration and deprivation. Um, the connection between frustration and a person engaging in an act, however, is not as strong if you look at more general literature. And attitude could not cannot be a good indicator of how a person acts in the future, right? Thirdly, even though good social psychological theories are for individual responses, we have to remember that relative deprivation is looking at collective responses. And you cannot just assume that the collective is the sum of individuals and apply the same logic. And um, oh, last, uh, lastly, the most important caveat maybe is that relative deprivation theory has no discussion on how this collectivization of individuals is happening or how a particular outcome of a social movement occurs either. There is no clarity on the causal direction because the theory assumes correlation that does not allow us to pinpoint what was the cause and what was the consequence. And this is simply because of how descriptive the theory is in its nature. So I think that's what relative deprivation is. And uh, those are some of the conceptual problems that exist with this theory. Thank you. Thank you for that great uh, characterization of this key concept that we're going to be discussing. And just to add on to what you've already said, the discrepancy between objective inequalities and the perception of unfairness is extremely important in this theory, right? Because, uh, because there is also in the paper towards the end, they also discuss how if there is a existing inequality in a society, people more often might not perceive it as unfairness because most people get used to their living conditions and are okay with it. But if there is, a loss that is about to happen and they, they can feel that their prospects are going to get much, much worse, then they, they, their perception of unfairness might actually increase and therefore they might engage in or choose to engage in political violence. And that is very much the crux of this entire thing because their paper is pushing back against not just other forms of other theories of protest that you covered, like mass society or rational choice or resource mobilization. It's also pushing back within relative deprivation on the literature that claims that inequalities themselves are important for political violence and is claiming that it's not just inequalities but changes in the level of inequality, so to speak, or changes in the level of economic prospects of people, uh, individuals that will motivate them. These are the, this is the theoretical concepts, conception of the paper. And then what is the methodology they adopt and what are the findings that they arrive at? Right. So I'm not going to bore our listeners by explaining the regression models they use, but um, we can discuss like some caveats of the methodology that, you know, both of us were discussing. But before that, the findings of the paper. Now, one is they want to renovate some part of this, you know, connection between relative deprivation and political violence. And they want to look at studies to do that. So specifically, they wanted to assess the general argument that I presented by Gar that dynamic forms of deprivation are more important for violence. And they wanted to further build on this theory by Gar by drawing on individual level research and other disciplines not limited to social psychology, but maybe broadly looking at general psychology and even behavioral economics. Um, the paper successfully shows that perceptions of disadvantageous economic changes that don't have to be necessarily individual at the individual level, but rather could be even at a more group level are related to motivations to participate in violence. 
An instance of this could be, say, changes in inequalities between groups or rather than changes of inequalities between, say, individual A and B. And in case there is a change in this kind of inequality, it might be a reason to better predict some kind of civil conflict. Their, their findings also suggest the same thing, that group-level grievances are associated with violent motivations. However, they also find the, a small caveat to their findings is that there are some individual-based grievances also that relate to such motivations. Therefore, while largely a person is motivated by, say, meso-level changes, there are some times uh, where, you know, their individual-based grievances could come into play. And I think the most important of these individual-level grievances then becomes a person's identity, which is the idea of horizontal inequalities, which we could get into in some time. And lastly, the study has been, you know, very, could be considered as instrumental in trying to integrate psychology into trying to study large macro, macro political phenomena like social movements, as well as trying to see whether individuals can be looked at in this sort of vacuum that we've been thinking of them as. And yeah, on that note, Atish, do you want to maybe talk about some of the limitations of the study, both that the authors have identified and that you did while reading the paper. Yeah, actually, but so before that, the, the methodology that they adopt is they use large, very large survey data. Total number of participants are, I think, more than 51,000. Now, this survey was conducted not by them, but over five different phases uh, through an organization called Afrobarometer in uh, various African countries. So this research was done entirely on various African countries. And then we get, and, and then based on that data, they identify certain questions as proxies for their various variables. Because one of the variables is people's perception that their prospects are going to get worse in the, in the future. And the other variable being of political violence, right? And they, they take both of these and through their model, they try to find associations between this. And one of the limitations, first of all, is the fact that it's based on survey data. And they, of course, identify this in the paper, right? Because there is non-response bias in the sense that something like political violence is extremely sensitive, right? It's an extremely sensitive subject. And we know from, you know, common sense, if I can use that, is that especially political violence would be hired in countries that, that do not have democracy, for example, right? We should not have those means where people can be heard without a large level of chaos. But that also means that in those countries, people that are guilty of violence would actually be much worse. The punishment would be much worse, right? Because if you're living in a country that is ripe with civil conflict, and then maybe there is some sort of normalcy that has been restored by someone coming to power, and you have engaged in violence, you might not want to agree to that because that might mean that you might attract attention and and suffer repression because of your engagement with violence. So that means that there would be a huge non-response bias in the survey, in the survey data they have collected because people might not want to agree to uh, the violence. They also say that there, the parameter they use to measure relative deprivation, that shows that among the non-respondents, in fact, the deprivation measure was higher. So that means their study actually underestimates the relationship between poor prospects and political violence because the people that did actually respond do not have as bad a relative deprivation like they're not as bad on the relative deprivation scale as those that did not respond that's the first limitation 
Now, secondly, uh, and this I don't know if it's a limitation, but just some more of a truth about about studies in uh, like this in general. At one at one place in their uh, in the methodology, they identify a very interesting statistic. They say that there was a question whose responses they analyzed to get here, and the question was, how do you see your prospect in the near future, right? Economic prospect living conditions changing in the near future. And the people that said, and people that said that they see that their prospects are going to get much worse in the near future, the living conditions are going to get much worse. Those people, out of them, 10% responded that they if they get a chance to engage in political violence in the near future, they will. But at the same time, of the people that responded that they see that the living conditions are going to be get much better in the near future, of that, till 6% said that if they get a chance, they will engage in political violence. So the actual difference <laughs> between people that think that their chances are going to get much, life chances are getting going to get much better and still they will engage in violence versus people whose life conditions will get worse and they want to engage in violence is actually much smaller. So I think that just shows us that often people that engage in violence, often that people that are willing or at least express the intention to be violent. Because as Arush has already pointed out, intention is not always translated into action. People that at least show their intention to be violent, there must be some inherent reasons why they are already predisposed towards that. And other maybe all other environmental factors do not matter as much. Thanks, Artish. That was really insightful. I think the only caveat that I would like to largely touch on is something I hinted at before, which is, this concept of horizontal inequalities. This is also a way of understanding multidimensional inequalities and, you know, the dynamics of violent group mobilization, especially in areas where people belong to heterogeneous groups rather than one homogenous identity. Barrow in 1976 came up with this idea of ethnic group inequality. Horowitz in 1985 came up with ranked ethnic groups and most, most predominantly we have Tilly uh, who called it categorical inequalities, which is, you know, similar intergroup inequalities. And uh, these become important because according to social identity theory, individuals' investment in membership and the salience of group boundaries increases the likelihood that relative deprivation will be experienced in its collective form. And something I pointed out earlier was that the theory doesn't necessarily talk a lot about how does that collectivization happen. And that collectivization is actually happening due to another theory called the social identity theory, where people are going to invest in their invest their time and energy in, into this group that they belong to. And therefore, any sort of change in this group will therefore be felt at a very at a group level rather than an individual level. Now, secondly, the distinction between horizontal inequalities and relative deprivation is that relative deprivation theory by definition focuses on motivations of the disadvantaged in quotes in society. Whereas the horizontal inequality thesis stresses that it's not only resentment among the deprived that may cause political instability, though that generally does seem to be the case, the relatively privileged can also attack the unprivileged or the state as a reaction to what they perceive as unfair redistribution or out of fear that relatively deprived may demand more resources and political power. An example of this is the Basque conflict in Spain. Now, horizontal inequalities, where do they originate? Um, they tend to have their origin in some sort of historical circumstances. 
and they tend to reproduce over time, sometimes lasting for decades and centuries. For, in- for instance, an initial advantage often leads to long-term cumulative advantages in access to resources, education that allows more privileged groups to secure further advantages and then, you know, widens the gap between the privileged and the less privileged. The risk of violent group mobilization is higher when people are convinced that their socioeconomic deprivation is caused by deliberate discrimination by the state. This is what the horizontal inequality theory states. And that is why we notice that it ties in so well with the relative deprivation because it's the same idea that when your socioeconomic deprivation is being caused by somebody, and you can very nicely point out that it is the state, you will violently revolt against the state. And yeah, and the literature on political violence is emphasized on two factors that lead to group mobilization, grievance and opportunity. And uh, there's a, a researcher called Stewart who has done extensive research on horizontal inequalities and the mobilization into political violence. It's uh, Stewart argues that in societies where economic, socio-political inequalities coincide with ethnic cleavages, then identity becomes a mobilizing agent that can lead to political violence. And given the fact that this paper particularly is researching African countries, it it felt almost like a very jarring caveat or limitation of the paper to view people in a vacuum rather than identifying that they are part of a larger socio-political economic sphere and their identities are very, very intimately tied with those spheres. And uh, and I think that that stood out to me as the most important caveat of the paper. That it, And while the authors do identify this is a limitation, they don't they believe that, you know, it's an avenue for further research. They, they don't try and... Uh, you know, try to do some sort of sensitivity analysis or trying to control for this kind of behavior in individuals. And secondly, all of these are surveys where people know that, you know, they're being surveyed for a very specific purpose. And to go back to something Deborah Stone mentions in Policy Paradox is this idea that when people know they're being measured, that behaviors change. Therefore, given the fact that a lot of subjectivity can creep into these uh, surveys, and as you mentioned, you know, that socio-ethnographic and social social psychology tends to embed themselves into the environment of the very people they're serving. They become a part of the environment. It's quite possible that the results are not an accurate representation of who the people are or what their real motivations were. And therefore, controls for these kind of things should have been placed into the paper to make it probably a more robust and stronger paper in its empirical strategy. Yeah, so those are very fair points. Another very important, and I don't think it's a caveat or, or, or limitation as such, but just a very important counterfactual that I thought that was not mentioned as much in the paper at all, is when they're doing the literature review, they mention how existing research shows that uh, the propensity for violence or the chance of people wanting to do violent protests or you know engage in violence is much higher among groups that used to have uh, like economic political power and it seems like they're going to lose it or until recently they were powerful and they've just recently lost it and I thought the opposite would also be very true right because if there is a perception amongst the group that they have historically not been in power and they in fact come to power after that uh, and by power I mean not just political but also like economic power then they might also engage in that sort of 
retaliatory violence. And they don't really go into this, because, but in fact, if we just look at historical events, this seems to be a very important driving factor behind, especially the Rwandan genocide, right? Which is the, throughout the history of Rwanda, the Hutu-Tutsi relationship has been mediated by this conflict where that the Hutus have believed that they were structurally discriminated against under uh, Tutsi regime, under Tutsi king. And therefore, when Hutus came to power, they wanted to take revenge for everything that has happened. And, and because Tutsis were minorities, Tutsis were minorities, and uh, Hutus were the majority uh, of the population, they believed that how could a minority have ruled us for so long, so now that we are in power, we will take revenge for that. That's something very interesting that the paper hints at, but never really goes into it because obviously it's beyond the scope of the paper. But I think just adding on to what you've said about group inequalities, uh, yeah, horizontal inequality, it's also important because everything is about perception here, right? People will join violent protests, if you're talking about it, only because they perceive things are unfair. So if it's about perception, then there's also discrimination, there's also biases and, and just stereotypes that also come in. So because inequalities need not always be starkly economic, but it could also be derived from cultural point of view, right? For example, some people might believe that a minority culture is has much more value than their own culture or their country values a minority culture much more than theirs. And that might result in a sort of political violence. So when, and I think that's another important way in which we should understand this because when we talk about inequalities, it need not always just be economic, especially in countries that might not have as stark economic divides, but might still have violence. Because if, when a country, if a country gets richer and objectively all people are better off, that does not mean there might there would be no political violence. There might be less of it, but there could be political violence due to other kinds of inequalities like like the cultural ones that I was talking about. So, so yeah, I think that's what I wanted to add. What do you think, Arushi? Do you agree? Do you have anything else to add? No, I think I completely agree with you that more often than not, we end up looking at just one side of a relationship where we tend to argue that the less privileged are more likely to revolt. But at the same time, if you know we were to remember this idea of you know the idea that you know everyone does anything for survival, if the you know if the power or the stronghold of those with greater you know privilege is being threatened, they are also equally likely to revolt, especially even if it may not be really a material change, but just a perceived change as that's what the entire relative deprivation theory is based on. Yeah, so I think it's necessary that when we as researchers look at a problem, we're not limiting ourselves to just one side of the sphere and we account for both. Um, while, you know, especially undertaking such large scale studies, um, we could fall prey to, say, some sort of reverse causality or some sort of omitted variable bias, which both of these problems uh, become visible in looking at just one side of the lens of saying that less privileged people are more likely to engage in political violence. Great points, Arushi. And uh, yeah, I think this was a great conversation. We discussed in detail about various theories of of political violence and why people join them. And uh, we discussed this paper, found its limitations, and I think uh, I think it was it was very insightful. We will link the paper in the show notes uh, so you can read it for yourself. And yeah, thank you so much for listening, listener, and we will join you next time. If you liked our show, 
Don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at Takshashila INST or our website takshashila.org.in.